you know Murphy's Law where like anything that can go wrong will go wrong mm-hmm. um do you know Cole's Law no oh it's just a thinly sliced cabbage <laughs> That's really bad, Alan. Thank you. But also really great. <laughs> Jessica Chung is a patient education specialist at Seamless MD, where she designs interactive care plans for patients, including cancer care and specific cancer surgery programs. Jessica has a Bachelor of Science degree in biology and a minor in chemistry. She also has a Doctor of Pharmacy degree from the University of Toronto. As a registered pharmacist, her passion lies in medication management, opioid use reduction, and providing easy-to-understand healthcare information to others. When she's not working, and when we're not in a pandemic, Jessica likes to travel and check off her adventure bucket list. Jessica, welcome back to the show. Hi. Hey, Jess. Um, So just for a bit of background for our audience, uh, in episode five of the Seamless MD podcast, Mm -hmm. we discussed the opioid crisis. It was just with uh, Joshua and myself, but uh, I I feel like we did it justice. We covered topics like how the overdose epidemic is exacerbated by the opioid uh, that are prescribed post-surgery. We also touched on uh, enhanced recovery after surgery or ERAS and other uh, opioid sparing modalities being used by surgery teams to reduce opioid use. And then we also discussed some of the limitations with the traditional opioid risk tools that are being used to quantify patient risk. One of the main limitations being there's little or no action being taken to change mm-hmm. prescription practices and or uh, patient behavior. So today we're excited to have Jessica back on the podcast to take a deeper dive into how digital patient engagement is being used to curb the opioid crisis, uh, and in particular, how she approached building Seamless MD's medication and opioid tracking care plans for our partners. So Jessica, maybe let's briefly talk about the current state of things uh, to begin the discussion. I'm curious, in, in your words, how are providers traditionally, so you know, not with digital patient engagement, how are we traditionally scoring opioid risk, and why is this problematic? Sure. I think you guys touched on it in the previous podcast on opioids, but um, there are some validated tools out there and some are done mainly by the patient. Some are done with the, with the clinician um, by the bedside, but those are the ORT, so opioid risk tools. I actually use that one with patients during my rotation at St. Mike's, but there's also the Calm, there's a SOAP, and then there's a the clinical um, rated tool such as Dyer, and those are the ones that the clinicians actually use. Um, all of these are really done to you know, find the risk of opioid use and help predict how well the patients may do on an opioid, um, if it's actually gonna work well for them, how likely they are to stay adherent to it, and can really rule out you know, what, who are the good candidates for opioid use. But opioid use um, may also be measured or the risks may be um, scored using nationwide programs. So there's like the PDMP. Um, so clinicians can use this prescription drug monitoring program. They can log on to that to see um, and track how patients are um, filling their medications and um, can track all the patterns there. And then those are just for the states. But in Canada, we also have NMS, which is the National uh, monitoring, monitoring System. And all of these are really indirect ways to track, I guess, um, opioid risk. It doesn't really truly involve the patient. That's where it becomes challenging because if we don't involve the patient in these risk scoring tools, they're not really going to be changing their behavior around the opioid um, use and misuse. And so it really does make um, it 
puts more effort on the clinician to sit down and have that discussion. If there's no discussion around it, there's no behavior change. Um, so perhaps later on in this um, podcast, we can talk about the initiatives at Atrium um, because Atrium is doing a lot of work to help patients um, find their risk um, before their like the surgery actually happens. Gotcha. I guess just one of the challenges that I guess Alan and I also highlighted in um, some of the past podcasts um, on this topic is that organizations are doing a pretty good job, I think now of, let's call it um, measuring prescriptions of opioids and maybe reducing prescriptions of opioids. Mm -hmm. And also, I mean, collecting consumption, let's call it during the hospital stay. Mm -hmm. But when you send a patient home after something such as a surgery and you give them 15, 30 pills of narcotics, you typically don't really know how much a patient has actually decided to use. So you have great data on prescriptions of how much should be give out. You have almost no data on what did a patient actually use. And so you typically don't have data to feed back into your improvement process to understand, okay, well, if I prescribe 30 pills, um, is a patient taking all 30? Did they really only need 10? You know, what, what were their pain scores and recovery? How did that go? And so then why would you change that practice if there's no data to inform that change? And, and then also, again, that some of that data could, I guess, in some ways be fed back into some of the risk scoring um, that could have, that could happen, but isn't typically happening. So there's definitely that, that missing piece still. Um, just wanted, just wanted to highlight that for the, the yeah. audience because um, they may not have listened to our past, our past podcast mm -hmm. on this topic. Mm -hmm. Additionally, I think the PDMP in the States, it's a really good tool for patients or for the clinicians before they actually prescribe the medication, um, but doesn't, doesn't really track the day-to-day -day use um, mm -hmm. and the intake at that level. Um, so I can imagine before those tools even existed, it was hard to um, really capture that, um, the day-to-day -day use. You've mentioned already Atrium Health and some of the great work that they're doing uh, with their, their opioid risk, you know, not only scoring what's going on with the patient, but then actually acting um, to help change patient behavior. Something else that's neat that they're doing is they're actually uh, then retesting opioid risk as the patient's been educated. So I'm, I'm jumping around a little bit um, in terms of what the technology is actually allowing them to do. Um, so I, I'm curious, just at maybe a high level to start, how, how does digital patient engagement help this process or help both clinicians and patients with opioid risk? Yeah, and Alan, if it's okay, before getting to Jess on that, just to, to frame it for the audience, we're talking about platforms like SeamlessMD where patients are guided on their phone, their tablet or computer through different healthcare journeys. For example, guiding a patient through preparation before surgery, recovery afterwards, um, with things such as reminders of what to do at the right time, interactive education, whether it's content, videos, illustrations, um, daily to-dos, and then very importantly, which we're going to get to, which is tracking progress and patient-reported outcomes, whether it's, you know, symptoms, compliance with, with instructions, pain scores, opioid consumption, incision photos after surgery, all kinds of things, and then sending that data back to dashboards and analytics so that the care team, such as frontline nurses, PAs, physicians, and other folks can actually monitor a patient before and after um, hospitalization, catch something earlier, perhaps prevent a readmission, but also start looking at all this rich patient-reported data and aggregate so that they can do things such as, you know, quality improvement around opioid prescription practices or, or, or managing pain or whatnot. So just want to set the stage there from a patient engagement point of view, 
And then, cause I think Jess is going to talk uh, at some point about our work with Atrium Health. For those who don't know, Atrium Health is a 40 hospital system um, across North and South Carolina. Um, and we've been doing work with them for, for several years on leveraging digital patient engagement across their, their surgical programs. So um, I'll stop there, but just so the audience has the land of land. And then uh, uh, Jess, over to you to talk a bit more about um, digital patient engagement and, and opioid management. Yeah, so I think digital patient engagement, it's not just about the patient, it really does help um, the clinical teams as well. Um, so for the patient side, it helps with the education. So um, I did pull a little bit of data from our dashboards um, just to share what patients have said about these programs. Um, so I can share those. Um, so how does um, digital patient engagement help patients? Um, one patient said that their medication had no refills left and they didn't know if they needed to continue these medications and Seamless was able to address that concern. Um, another great piece of feedback was that um, answering questions about pain medication was a good motivation to establish a daily schedule and very diligently keep track of the amount of meds taken daily. And that was you know, promoting health behavior change, making sure that they're keeping um, track of those and then reporting them back to their doctor and having conversations around that. So the education piece, the reminders, the daily check-ins really do help the patient um, both keep engaged but keep safe um, while they're using these medications. And then for the clinical teams, they use the data, of course, um, to see how they can improve um, the surgery, the pathway. Um, like you mentioned, Josh, some, some clinicians do prescribe a lot more um, pills that patients actually need. I've had experience filling at a, like a prescription for 100, 100 pills of opioids when really the patient probably only needed 30. Um, and so it does happen. And so that's one way we can help um, clinical teams, but it also helps um, pull some of the data. So all of our um, opioid use and the trends are converted into oral morphine equivalents for data analytic purposes um, for clients. So that's another way that um, this platform can really help clinical teams um, analyze those trends as well as the use and promote just health behavior change within the health system itself. Awesome. And then maybe we can dive into some of the specific features, some of the, the unique features that digital patient engagement allows these care teams to actually collect some of this data and actually empower change and, and behavior for our patients. So let's maybe start the, the first level, the basics. So how are we actually using the technology to score opioid risk? Yeah, so I can speak to, I guess, the opioid module in its entirety. Um, mm -hmm. So there are two elements. There's definitely the one, the tracker that we do, um, given in the daily health check, but also in the education library. I can speak to the opioid risk tool first. So I can just I guess, start um, the discussion on Atrium and the end opioid project there. Um, but the project really started, the team with Dr. Variotis at Atrium Health started to collect historical patient data starting from, I think, 2018 all the way to 2019. They gathered that using Seamless, um, and they wanted to develop an opioid risk calculator with a little bit of gamification in there for patients to use before their actual surgery. So using risk factors such as patient age, weight, height, smoking history, substance use, as well as opioid use before surgery, they're able to give them a score. And this score really, the meaning of the score is, um, it shows them how likely they are to use opioids in the one month after surgery. So it's not a, a risk of abuse or misuse of the opioids, but just the risk of their likeliness to use opioids in general. 
Um, and so it's neat because using the historical data, the patient is given their risk and it compares their risk to their peer group. So it can show, um, you know, how, how does my score compare to pe people who have gone through this surgery in the past? So if I did this, the score, I may get a percentage of 50% um, versus the people who did in the past, they may have a score of 30. So it kind of shows that, you know, there are ways that my score can decrease. And the gamification pieces in that is that um, we keep this, this tool available for patients every day, and they're able to retake the score. Um, and it kind of motivates them to change their lifestyle behaviors. So things there that the risk that they can change are, of course, we can't change our age or our height, but we can change our weight, we can change our smoking and substance abuse. And it motivates patients that, you know, you can change your lifestyle and lifestyle modifications do help your score and can lower that. Um, so that's one way Atrium has been using that um, tool before surgery. And of course, there are things that um, they collect after surgery as well. Um, to it, it's really neat, Jess. I know like there's been um, a lot of work invested in other similar surgical risk tools, not, not specifically for, for opioid use, but there's a lot of other um, like uh, risk calculators. I know the American College of Surgeons and Nesquip has this um, preoperative risk calculator where you plug in the type of procedure, age, demographics, comorbidities, and it spits out what is your risk of complications, mortality, morbidity. And, and some organizations, particularly in Michigan, have tried um, having clinicians sit next to a patient preoperatively, walk them through that, and then determine, hey, like, should, number one, should we even do surgery, right? Because if, you, if it ends up being that, hey, your mm. mortality risk is like 50%, okay, well, maybe surgical intervention is not the right intervention here for you. Um, but even if the mortality rate is low, if the complication rate is high or the morbidity rate is high, um, that might affect whether the patient will want to do surgery or to what you're getting at just maybe it uh, informs or encourages them to change some of those modifiable risk factors in advance. So maybe, maybe that they use that to convince the patient, Hey, this is your risk factor of complications today. But mm -hmm. we know from our data that if you go on prehab or we get you on an enhanced recovery pathway, or you use, you know, a patient engagement like seamless MD, we can bring that risk down. Right. Um, so it's almost like that same concept, but in this kind of novel way around opioid um, use um, post-operatively. So I thought, so that, and it reminded, reminded me of that. I think that's mm -hmm. really neat. I don't think I've learned about anyone doing this sort of innovation um, or this type of innovation for opioid care. And Jess, you, you've mentioned that the opioid tracker that we have, let's say post-surgery, how does that work? And, and how is it similar to your medication tracker that you've built? And then how is it different? How does it actually interact with the, the healthcare system? Mm -hmm. um, so the opioid tracker right now, we have a, a few revisions of it, so I can speak to each of those. The first one is our simple tracker, um, which is customized to follow the specific hospital formularies. Um, so we asked during our pathway reviews to the nursing or the surgeons, which of these medications do you use? Um, what are the most common doses? And then we can convert those into oral morphine equivalents for data purposes after. So that's one way we do it. The other way we do it is the universal um, opioid and doses tracker. So the most common opioids are all listed there, both the derived and the synthetic, and then we have the most commonly used doses. So patients can really go in there, check which one they were given, um, their dose, and then go on to track how many they take each day after that. Um, the neat thing about our opioid tracker is that 
Um, not only are we revising it all the time, but we include subtle reminders in the actual tracker to point to the fact that opioids may not be the best choice for pain management. In order to do that, we ask questions like, did you take your Tylenol? Did you try Tylenol before taking opioids to manage pain? Did you try different complementary type um, pain management things like, you know, acupuncture? Um, so Atrium developed a whole um, program around that with Dr. Gentile. Um, as well as videos. So that was really neat. We also remind patients that opioids can cause side effects. So if patients report they take more than one, medic like one pill a day, we probe, did you experience constipation, any fatigue, you know, just to mm -hmm. show that opioids do come with consequences. And the, it's not just, um, it gets rid of pain, but it also comes with a lot of other effects. And then when patients report that they take no opioids that day, we then probe um, them to think about, do you, do you think you'll continue to use this? Do you think you'll need to take this um, now that your pain's gone, now that it's getting better? Um, and if they say that they no longer need to take it, then we, um, we ask them, how did you dispose of your medication? And give them suggestions to safely dispose of them. So in Canada, we say to bring it back to your pharmacy. In the States, we'll say you can bring it back to your pharmacy or there's specific disposal sites for patients to... Um, bring their opioids there. So in all of those ways, we kind of address um, the different safety pieces, not only just tracking like how many they take a day. So, th so I just want to unpack some of the, the things uh, Jesse just mentioned. So for our audience who isn't as familiar with, with platforms um, for, for patient engagement like Seamless MD, um, so when the patient goes home after their surgery, part of the experience on the application is they get reminded, let's say for the first 30 days post-discharge to do what we call a health check or, or a digital check-in where the patient is prompted each day to track um, signs or symptoms or issues that are typically specific to that surgery type. So maybe for colorectal surgery, you're tracking pain and nausea and vomiting, stoma outputs and all that. But then mm -hmm. what, what Jess's team has, has designed is also on top of that, this opioid tracking component to that digital check-in where the patient is tracking which opioids they're, they're taking in recovery and, and how much and um, what other pain medications they're using and all that kind of stuff. And what Jess described was that there's a lot of intelligence built into this tracker, right? So Jess was saying how, hey, you know what? Um, the, once, once we learn from the patient, I'm, I'm you know, on hydromorphone or on some other like opioid, then ongoing, the platform actually remembers that. And I think like starting the next day, the patient only gets asked, hey, how many pills of hydromorphone did you take, right? So that the program actually, as it learns about what the patient is doing, it remembers that and it kind of personalizes that, that digital check-in. And that's really phenomenal because either, you know, I think normally in the hospital, you, let's be honest, like there's no one in the hospital who's going to call the patient every day to track these symptoms and, and collect this opioid data. But then even if they did, they'd have to, what, remember what the patient mm. was taking, how many they took yesterday, put that to a spreadsheet. Um, so really like um, Jess's team has automated this whole process, which you know makes it easier for the patient too, because if you called the patient, they might not be home, they might not pick up. So it's all kinds of really unique ways in which this, this really streamlines that whole um, experience um, for, for the patient and the care team. So I think that's just really phenomenal work, Jess. Um, and uh, excited to kind of, you know, to probably some point in the future, you're going to um, share more about, for example, the work at Atrium, what did the results look like? What were the learnings? Mm -hmm. I actually, I am curious, you know, as you, because we know from our work that, you know, if you engage a patient on other things, it's made an impact, but the opiate piece in particular is, is still quite new um, and, and understanding, hey, can we actually 
change behavior by doing more education on, on real-time risk. That's really interesting. Um, I, I, I actually don't know. Um, and I'm not sure there's any other data that anyone's ever done research on, but, but this might be one of the first. So that's, that's really exciting. Mm -hmm. I agree. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think also just, just kind of adding to that, the value exchange that's present for patients. So, you know, collecting this information from patients, but then like you said, Josh, it's personalizing the questions for the patient, but then also personalizing the care uh, that's given back to the patient based on their report. So if they've indicated a certain level of pain and maybe they didn't take their opioids or they didn't try Tylenol and they didn't try other uh, pain medications, well, it's going to remind them, here's how you can go about that safely. Here's, you know, different methods that you can try. Uh, and it's going to, again, give value to the patient based on their response. Um, Jessica, another part of the opioid tracker and the module with SeamlessMD is its integration with EHR platforms and other systems. I know at uh, Atrium Health, they built, uh, I think they called it their Primum or Primum uh, clinical notification system uh, for opioids. But do, do you mind speaking to how the information in SeamlessMD actually gets back to the clinicians and how they can then leverage that data? I know you said it's the oral morphine equivalents that we're sharing with them for data analytics, but um, what parts of the, the platform are actually um, integrated with their systems and how does that look? So for the dashboards, um, I'm not too familiar with all the data, data analytic pieces, but I know that providers have access to patient dashboards. They can check the trends. So for a specific surgery type, they can see high level, all the, sur um, the surgery types um, and the patients that have gone through that, so maybe 100 patients within the past three months, they're able to see how each of those patients on a high level scale um, use their opioids, but we can really narrow it down to also the patient, individual patient use um, and track that 30 days. So I, most of our surgery programs are available 30 days after discharge, so we don't track um, the opioid use after that time, but those pieces are always available to the patient um, I mean, to the provider, sorry, um, on their dashboards. And so I can imagine that some nurses will track pain as well and see if there's correlation between the intake between the opioids and pain levels, um, reach out to the patient if they notice um, high levels of opioid intake or high levels of pain and see maybe if they can suggest something else other than um, them taking, you know, opioid medication as needed. Maybe they can introduce other complementary type therapies in there. Um, so that's how I know that the opioid tracker is integrated into um, the medical records. It's through those dashboards at the moment. Right. Do you know, Jess, with like some of this, this new data you're collecting through the opioid risk score tool um, that's kind of based on more historical data, I guess. And then obviously there's data we're collecting afterwards about their actual consumption. Um, have you and the HM team talked about in the future if there's any value in somehow connecting those two components or the data from that, or is that still a discussion that that will come later? Oh yeah, that's the whole that's the whole reason they're doing this um, project. It's kind of like their end opioid pilot project where they want to compare um, the scores and the opioid use um, after patients are given this tool before surgery, and then compare the the use of opioids during that 30-day window, um, like I guess this year or the in the previous years to come, compare that to historical data. So from 2017 to 2020. Um, mm. So they'll see how um, initiatives like that score tool have helped 
how the whole, they, they developed a whole different platform for opioids, like a module for it and super engaging videos with virtual reality. So they're doing a lot of things in opioids um, to really help, um, I guess, their patient population. And I think they're really that, yeah. That's awesome. I think one of the, the neat things that could come down the line is, and this is true for any intervention in healthcare where not every intervention that you could do to help a patient helps every patient, right? So you might figure out down the road that, again, like I'm, I'm just making up numbers here because um, but let's say on the opioid risk scoring tool, um, maybe we find out that, hey, patients who have a 20% risk of long-term use, this intervention that, that could, that we could come up with later in the future, maybe some education intervention doesn't work for that group, but we know from the data that anyone who has a risk of 80% plus, the intervention does help that group. And so then as we learn more about what works or doesn't work to support these different um, risk um, groups, you can then build that into the platform and say, hey, you know what, whoever scores this percentage of risk, they get these extra interventions on the platform or support or education and those who have a different risk level get a different one. I think that's a, a, the level of personalization we're gonna get to. I mean. For example, I mean, you know, there's probably going to be some partners where um, let's talk about, I mean, prehab, for example, right? I'm sure there's going to be partners where based on a patient's preoperative frailty score or risk factors that is inputted on seamless, some patients will automatically get prehab, some may not need prehab, right? So right now, a lot of that decision is manually done by, I think, a provider, but you can imagine some point where it's like seamless knows so much about the patient going into a care journey that as long as we know that that information, we can predict, okay, what should they get on seamless prehab or not opioid mm -hmm. interventions or not? I mean, who knows, right? That the sky is the limit. And this is just kind of one of the foundational things that's going to get us to, I think, a pretty amazing personalized, you know, journey at some point, uh, increasingly personalized in the future. I mean, we're doing personalized things today. I mean, that is mm -hmm. true, but mm -hmm. I mean, there's so much more that we could do, which is really, really interesting. And you don't even have to think about it at some point. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. You can enroll the patient on the platform and then like magic happens because there's so much <laughs> underlying like intelligence and analytics and, and workflows built into the, the system. Um, so anyways, that, that's really yeah. cool. Well, and, and even getting into like the nuances, let's say, um, you know, whatever percentage of patient needs prehab, maybe it's a, a reduced version of prehab versus the full mm -hmm. prehab and, and it can get like nuanced, um, you know, basically beyond where we could individualize care just from a, a manual perspective with technology, it just always helps with that automation. Jess, I, I'm curious, have you heard from our providers what they're saying about the opioid tracking modules and um, some of the opioid risk tools that you've built in and the behavior change education that you've put into the platform? I hear it more so from the patients and what they enjoy about it, but patient, um, the providers always want us to include opioid trackers in there um, mm -hmm. they're very interested to know um, how many you know pain pain medications they're taking um, and also they're really into um, promoting Tylenol and Advil use over mm -hmm. opioids say they, they want to collect that information as well and see if um, pain levels are controlled just using those within the Canadian system um, with my work at Osler um, they're trying to get off of opioids altogether I think um, so they want to collect more of that um, non-opioid use medication. Yeah, they're, they're just really interested to gather that information because I guess there was no way to do it previously. Right. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, I, I, and and I know like there's there's been some great work in um, out of the University of Michigan, for instance, that's showing you know completely opioid sparing modalities and the effect that Tylenol and, and Advil have on pain. And hey, we can actually go about this the right way if we set proper expectations with our patients. And they actually report you know the same level of pain as if they had an opioid. So that's kind of neat stuff. Mm-hmm. So you definitely have built this for patients also with the, the framework and, and perspective of the clinician in mind as well. Um, what are patients saying about the, the entirety of the tool? So not just the, the, the tracker, but um, the education and, and the expectation setting. What are patients, what's the feedback been like? Yeah, so I think patients really appreciate the education piece around these and just pain management altogether. They really enjoy the complementary therapy more than I thought they would. Um, within the education library, we include um, recommended daily doses. So um, some patients find that very useful instead of having to look for it online, they can just go through Seamless and find the daily, um, the maximum daily intake for them. And that's personalized as well, I'm assuming? That's like based on their weight and... Yeah, so all of that information is within the actual library page. Right. Um, I think they also like the the check-in. So the fact that they can report how many they're taking and they know that their doctor is monitoring that um, Mm -hmm. is useful. I've noticed that people also appreciated um, the piece on the safety and storage, Mm -hmm. um, making sure they know how to store their medications and safely dispose of it. And then just how to control pain altogether. We have a piece in the education library about when they should actually be, you know, taking opioids. So if they have a pain between like zero and four, they can just manage it without, um, taking opioids if their opioids are really um, if their pain is really severe so seven to ten we can then suggest maybe opioid would be um, better suited um, than Tylenol in that case so um, yeah the patients really appreciate the education module and the daily the daily check-ins to keep them accountable yeah one of the other things just that you mentioned that I really like that we kind of glossed over was the fact that there's so much um, like content around not just you know, opioids themselves, but how do you actually dispose of them for safety reasons? Yeah. And it kind of reminds me how th- that, that that's a really important topic and maybe, or maybe not someone in the hospital is educating a patient on that topic, but I'm going to guess that of all the things the patient is told, that is not going to be top of, you know, their brain mm-hmm. to remember. And so it just reminded me of like, Hey, like getting that information at the point of recovery where it's relevant to me, I'm just going to be more that much more likely to be to say, oh, yeah, you know what? I should be a responsible citizen and dispose of you know the leftover opioids properly. Right. And just reminds me of this idea of you know how do you how do you make it easier for patients to do like the right thing for their health or, or or for the community? Like we just like like a big thing what we do in patient engagement is just make it easier mm-hmm. because stuff is so hard, right? Yeah. It's just too much to do, but like the fact that you've made it so much easier for them to do a safe, good thing, that's a really powerful thing. And, and right. I, I think, I think, I think mm-hmm. it's so easy as a, as a provider, just forget about the fact that, okay, it's great that they use less opioids, but okay, but what about what they didn't use? Mm-hmm. That's a great thing about, I think, Seamless and um, the programming with all the logic, we can push those out at the right time. So, you know, it doesn't apply to patients to dispose their medication at the very beginning. Um, when they're first reporting which medication they received, it applies to them when they're no longer in pain, when they're no longer taking that medication. So that's really neat how we can do timing dependencies and um, logic like that. 
Yeah. Whereas the traditional approach, if they even include it, is like, here's your discharge package. Here's your, you know, um, little pamphlet that you get that explains how to <laughs> take your pills, your, your pain management and stuff like that. And that's assuming that they've even included that in there. I mm -hmm. uh, might have a little box of how to dispose it. But again, it's like all the instructions are overwhelming, given all at once. And you have to kind of piece through it yourself and find what's relevant. So digital exactly, patient engagement yeah. definitely personalizes that whole journey and that experience for the patient. That's awesome. Um, Josh, did you have any other questions or? No, I think that's really awesome. I'm really excited to see um, what the data looks like once, once you know, it can be shared publicly. And, and I think more importantly, I'm just really curious about how it does impact um, how patients might change their behavior um, going into that surgery and, and, and how that might change their perception about opioids afterwards. Because I know, I know I had a family member where, um, you know, when she was going through surgery and I told her all about everything we learned about opioids and stuff like that. And so that really, you know, so then when she was talking to her clinician during her surgery, it was, hey, you know, like, do I really need the opioids? Mm -hmm. Or, hey, my pain is a zero or a one. Like, why are you still giving me more opioids? Mm -hmm. Like, I'm good, mm -hmm. right? Because the, the default of the hospital was, okay, like, everyone gets opioids. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. I don't know if you need it or not, but you're getting it. Right. Um, <laughs> so anyways, uh, yeah, I'm really excited to see what the data shows and, and bring Jess back on in the future for maybe like an update story or something like that. Yeah. I'm also super excited about what we can do with uh, chronic opioid use and patients who need help in that area. So I don't think we currently have any pieces in the education library or programs addressing naloxone use, um, methadone, but it'd be really great to have that um, in the future as well, um, addressing opioid withdrawal, addiction, um, and then tapering schedules too, mm -hmm. kind of like uh, um, the systematic tapering schedules people use with prednisone. Um, it'd be great if we could maybe include that with opioids in the future. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, all right. So Jess, at this part, uh, you might be remembering from our first episode with you, but we're going to jump over to the fast five lightning round, uh, basically five questions to get to know you a little bit better for our audience. Uh, first okay. question that we I'm have ready. today. Yeah, you ready? All right. First oh, question. We yes, we changed the question. So oh, no. we did. We did. Yeah. We're gonna, People don't know that these are <laughs> these are given to me in advance. <laughs> uh, it's a bait and switch. Uh, question number one: Aside from the basic necessities, what do you need to be happy, uh, or what do you need every day to be happy? I don't know if this is a basic necessity. I think it is, but I need good sleep. So I need a solid eight hours of sleep. So if I know if I have a client interview or client meeting. Um, at 7 a.m. I'll have to plan a, to sleep earlier that night. Right. So sleep is really important. Yeah, which is difficult because your 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 rhythm, your your circadian rhythm, like it, it's hard to go to sleep early if you have to. Yeah. Uh, at least that's me. But <laughs> I would agree I with that. Like one, to be happy. Yeah. yeah. But but, but Jess, as a as a clinical pharmacist, I'm sure there's lots of great. Uh, recommendations for how to sleep earlier. <laughs> hey, I, I, I'm a melatonin user. Like I'm, oh, I'm you not are? to admit, you know, it, it works. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, that's good. I'm glad it works for you. I know it doesn't work for a lot of people. Oh, what, like, really? did you know, um, side question. Do you know what percentage of people like it does work for? Is it, is it like 50, 50 or? No, I think it's definitely under 50. Really? Yeah. Wow. Interesting. I feel lucky. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, all right, question two. If you could travel to any location or time in history and live there for a week, what would you pick and why? 
So for the location, um, I would pick Ocean City. So Ocean City is in Maryland. Um, I really enjoy going to Ocean City. I've been going there every single year since I was 11, except this past one. Um, but it's in the States and I really like the boardwalk. And the neat thing about Ocean City is that they have in all their restaurants, almost all of them, they have um, all you can eat crab. So oh, nice. that's, uh, that's great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and is, is there a specific time in history or, you know, any time in the past 10 years or? So every summer, I guess. Right. Every summer. Wow. <laughs> For the past. I, that's awesome. I've actually never heard of Ocean City. Neither have I. Oh, really? No, yeah. but the pictures I'll look I'll do really a lightning cool. talk on it. Oh, cool. Wow. <laughs> and I love crab, so that's great. Mm -hmm. uh, it's literally question... all you can eat any kind of seafood. Yeah. Oh, amazing. There's no choice. Like, no, no, you have to eat. You have to eat all. <laughs> yeah. you, you just can't have one. Great. That's good. Uh, question three: What is one of your fondest memories from your childhood? Uh, one of my fondest memories from childhood would be going to the elephant show. I don't know, Josh and Alan, if you know the elephant show. That TV show. It kind of. Um, they used to show it on the like, TV. I thought kids. you were going to say going to Ocean City and eating all you can eat crab. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. <laughs> Two birds of one stone. That too. Yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, I the went to the live. Yeah, yeah, I went to that live elephant show um, with my dad. And then at the very end, I was able to take a photo with the actual elephant. So I, that was great. Wait, actual elephant or someone like in a It's someone in a costume, but to right. me, it was a real sure, elephant. Sure, yeah. Good enough. <laughs> That's great. The, the uh, only elephant I, I know as a kid was like Babar. Right. Oh, yeah. yeah. Babar yeah. the Babar. elephant. That's yeah. a good uh, cartoon. Was it a book as well? I know Probably, the cartoon. Yeah. It yeah. probably was. Uh, question four What is something you believe that others in healthcare might find insane? Okay. So there's in healthcare, there's this whole thing between about generic drugs and brand name drugs. Right. And in school, we're supposed we're taught that they're essentially the same thing. But for me and my purpose, for my purposes, when I'm in pain, I can't use generic medication. Oh, um, it is just a work for me. Huh. Is that true across the board or for specific um, medications for you? It's just for, I think, all medications. Oh, interesting. <laughs> I, I like to use the brand name. Um, but we're supposed to, you know, we, I do tell um, patients that they're essentially the same thing. And once right. the, the brand name loses its patent, other companies are able to copy it, but I like hmm. to stick with the brand name. Right. And and they are, like you're taught that, they're, they are the exact same. They, like are. they work on the same receptors, they're the exact same. That's yeah. interesting. They are. Huh. But do, 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 do you think that it's just like a, I mean, if, if it works, like that's great. I mean, placebo effect yeah. is a real thing, right? right? Even if that is the case here, right? Um, no, Jess is just snobby, like the, <laughs> the generic brand. No, thank you. Yeah, I mean, like I have friends who buy their ibuprofen like at Costco in bulk, right. and I'm just like, no, I have to use my. <laughs> right, you need the sugar-coated one that you know it tastes better. Yeah. It's just um, you know, Alan. They're able to spend more money on the the design of the box. It just unless it's, it's, it's more like <laughs> professionalism than like. It's hundred percent true. Yeah, thing, you know. Yeah, that's definitely the case. Um, okay, last question that we have. Uh, if you were not in healthcare, what would you be doing? So I played cello for the most of, for most of my life um, from when I was a child and I went to art school at Claude Watson. So I would probably be a cellist, if mm. not a pharmacist. Um, 
so right now probably doing like virtual orchestra concerts right. and um doing wow. that yeah that would be difficult like i don't know have you seen a virtual con i have or? okay it's quite Just amazing lag and stuff that would be you'd think it yeah. might be difficult that's yeah, cool. most of the uh, most of the orchestras the concerts I've seen are just they all are in the same um the hall but right. they're just wearing masks yeah oh right, right. I see. okay so they are together they're just yeah. but it's it's being streamed virtually. exactly okay yeah. yeah no that's great I mean um, Alan your idea is good too yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was literally thinking everybody's in like everybody in the in the uh, orchestra is like in their own living room or something. <laughs> like, oh, I've this. seen versions like that too, that would though. Be impossible. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. Oh, that's really cool. Do you still play or? Um, I haven't played in the past year. I don't know. Yeah. It's not, not something I've been drawn to during quarantine for some right. reason. Right. It, even though you'd think you you would be. Mm -hmm. And we've heard that from other guests as well who who play music, but they're saying you know during the pandemic they just haven't felt inclined to. Oh really? Yeah. Mm. Interesting. Mm. Yeah. and then I, I and then I've heard the opposite as well some people have picked up instruments all of a sudden yeah Alan I I've, I've stopped watching Netflix from the pandemic I just, just <laughs> right <laughs> yeah just you, you've switched to Amazon Prime or or another streaming service so like, that's good exactly exactly oh yeah no I use them all yeah <laughs> Uh, well, awesome. Jessica, thank you so much for being on the show today. Um, you know, the fast five questions and, and answers were great, but the, the opioid tracking and, and medication tracking, the modules that you put into Seamless MD, the context mm -hmm. that you have around uh, the different the nuances of how you can use digital technology to help patients, help clinicians, help basically the world on the opioid crisis uh, in, in curbing it uh, has been fantastic. Lots of insights there. Uh, I'm really, really excited to see the updates that you might have in the future uh, with Atrium Health and some other partners of ours. Mm -hmm. But uh, for the time being, thank you so much for being on the show and, and sharing your, your insights with us. Thanks for having me, guys. Thanks, Jess. Take care. Mm -hmm.